We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Novel Feelings. I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite novels. We are back. So today we are kicking off Season 3 with I'm Glad My Mum Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Uh, Bear with us for a few moments as we explain what our deal is for 2023. Yeah, so we are changing things up around here. This time around we are doing more of a read-along book club. So as you may or may not have seen on our social media, we've announced the fact that we're reading this book and that it is the focus of our episode about, I would say, six weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and that we are planning to release episodes like this every two months. Yeah, so we are having an in-depth discussion about books with mental health content, neurodiversity and other psychological themes, mostly focused on fiction books, though uh, today is, of course, a little bit of a non-fiction debut, a bit of a, uh, yeah, a little bit outside what we typically do. But yeah, we'll we'll go into it later on, but we really wanted to talk about this book for a few reasons. (laughs) Yeah. And this season, we want to interact more with our community and we would love to hear what you think about all of the books we're reading. We will post discussion questions to our social media and encourage conversation in between episodes. And if we get enough of an audience, potentially we can look at other options in the future, like Facebook groups or Discord servers. Mm. So, of course, to keep up to date with us, uh, you've got to follow us on social media at novel underscore feelings everywhere. Um, And as per usual, we are the most active on Instagram. So that's the best place to find us. Plus, in 2023, we are launching a reading challenge on the Storygraph. So if you don't know the Storygraph, it's an alternative to Goodreads. And essentially, as part of this reading challenge, we're encouraging people to read according to a bunch of prompts that relate to mental health themes, psychological themes, and neurodiversity. We're also including the books that we've got planned for the podcast this year as part of the reading challenge. So if you're keen to check that out, visit us on the Storygraph at novel underscore feelings. And don't forget to please rate and review us. If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we will read out your name in the next episode. Yeah, so if you do that, uh, please tune in for our episode that will be coming out in March um, to catch your little thank you. And speaking of March, we will announce our book for March at the end of today's episode, so please stay tuned if you're keen to get involved. But first, hey, Elise, how would you rate your week on a five-point scale? uh look it's been a bit of a week like a week with a capital a and a capital w (laughs) i give it uh, a solid like 2.5 out of five spreadsheets um and very heavy into data analysis for both work and uni this week like very much just heads down do data entry um trying to get statistics to the right people within short time frames and head in the numbers all week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't envy you at all. I hated stats. And... Oh, look, I like, st- <laughs> I like stats. I'm a nerd. Like I actually well, don't mind that side yeah. of things, but it's just when it's yeah. a lot of that within a short time frame. 
Yeah. It's not so fun. <laughs> yes. Well, that's why you're doing the PhD and I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Anyway. Uh, hey, Priscilla, how would you rate your week on a five point scale? Uh I would rate it three out of five assessment reports. Oh, no. Which is, <laughs> I'm going away very soon, and I only have about two weeks left of work this year, which is both exciting and exhausting because mm. it means I am cramming maybe five reports that I have to finish before I leave. <laughs> Big process, right, to get that yes, all together and in that's writing. that's right. Yes. So, you know, when I was a child and I wanted to be a writer, this was not exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> it's not creative writing, is it? No, no but that's okay. I will <laughs> I will get through them. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, reading books like this is a bit more of an escape from your day-to-day type of uh, reading and writing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Before we get started on our review, let's go over our usual disclaimers. So we are a spoiler podcast, though this time around, we're doing things a bit differently. Part one of this episode and all future episodes will be non-spoilery. And then the second part of the episodes will be full of spoilers, but we will flag when we're about to go into the spoilery bits. Yeah. If you want the deep dive, continue listening after that point. And this podcast should never be taken as therapeutic advice. We are speaking today as psychologists and book lovers, not necessarily as people with lived experience of the mental health issues that are covered in this book. So our voices are limited in this way. Mm. If you have lived experience, please do let us know what you think of the book. Absolutely. We would love to hear from you. Ah, Let's start talking a little bit more about I'm Glad My Mum Died. So first of all, uh, let's talk about the author. So Jeanette McCurdy starred in Nickelodeon's hit show iCarly and its spin-off Sam and Cat, as well as in the Netflix series Between. In 2017, she quit acting and began pursuing writing and directing. Her one-woman show, I'm Glad My Mum Died, has had two sold-out runs at the Lyric Hyperion Theatre and Hudson Theatre in LA. She also hosts a podcast called Empty Inside which I really should have listened to before this episode. Yeah, I know. But then listening to other author interviews and so on, but I haven't actually listened to her podcast yet, so maybe we should do that after the show. We should. Yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. For a bit of a summary, Jeanette McCurdy was six years old when she had her first acting audition. Her mother's dream was for her only daughter to become a star, and Jeanette would do anything to make her mother happy. So she went along with what mom called calorie restriction, eating little and weighing herself five times a day. She recounts all this in unflinching detail, just as she chronicles what happens when the dream finally comes true. So why did we choose this book? Well, although we typically focus on fiction, we're making a little bit of an exception today because... I guess this is such a fascinating and frank portrayal of lived experience, um, particularly with regards to parental abuse and eating disorders, as well as quite a few other themes that come up. It's also a really popular book at the moment. Like There is so much hype for this book. I know it's been sold out in a lot of bookstores as well, at least around our way. Mm -hmm. Um, And look, I... I was the person who put this book forward. I wasn't planning on reading this, actually. I hadn't didn't know anything about Jeanette McCurdy previously. And then I listened to the audiobook 
and I've been pushing it on everyone ever since then. So <laughs> I've, uh, I've covered it in two separate book clubs already. So my uni has a book club among the postgraduate psych- psychology PhD students. Uh, we have our own book club among our friendship group outside of this as well. And this was my pick. Um, so, Hey, danger book club, how are you going? If you're listening, uh, <laughs> love you guys. Hope you, hope you enjoyed this book too. Pushed it to a lot of people and now I'm pushing it on our listeners. So enjoy. <laughs> I think we know what Elise thinks of this book. <laughs> yeah, I hated it, clearly. Yeah. Terrible, terrible read. I I saw it on Bookstagram, where mm-hmm. else? And I heard all about how people couldn't get a copy at the start. And that was how much hype this book had. Mm. So I was really quite excited when you told me to read this. And I have thoughts about it (laughs) (laughs) which we will go into shortly and just a couple of quick content notes for today so uh, of course as I mentioned this book does talk quite a bit about eating disorders the book itself contains a lot of detail about disordered eating behaviors but we we won't sort of be mentioning specific numbers or habits in detail Um, we, we want to avoid that kind of potentially triggering content but you know it's it's woven throughout the book um it also does Uh, cover topics such as substance abuse, um, child abuse, in particular emotional abuse, uh, death of a parent, cancer, hoarding, panic attacks, OCD, and some mentions of schizophrenia and psychosis. It's quite a list. Mm. Now we will start part one, our non-spoilery discussion and review. Priscilla, did you know who Jeanette McCurdy was before this book came out? Yes, I did. So I... I was more of a Disney Channel kid growing up, but I also had Nickelodeon in the background every now and again. I didn't watch iCarly in detail, but every now and again, an episode will be on TV and I will have nothing better to watch. (laughs) And Jeanette McCurdy is one of the main characters in iCarly. So I had some, some ideas of who she was, but I didn't, I wasn't a fan or anything. Mm. what about you did you know who she was before never heard of her (laughs) (laughs) so I I did not grow up with Disney Channel or Nickelodeon Mm. Uh, we only had free to air TV when I was growing up I think we had Foxtel for a total of maybe six months or so and then my parents decided to get rid of it because I was watching too much TV (laughs) but in any case that was way before iCarly came out so yeah I've missed a lot of that um, sort of cultural impact of Disney Channel, Nickelodeon and so on. Yeah, I I went into it with very fresh eyes. Yeah. So obviously this book does cover uh, pretty much Jeanette McCurdy's life from quite being quite a young child. I think her first anecdote is from the age of about two. Uh, So talking about, um, you know, her mum would, her mum was a cancer survivor, um, stage four breast cancer survivor. um, And boy, did she that sort of impact on her life and her perspective in such a significant way. The book kind of starts where she's talking about sitting down, her mum making everybody watch a video that she recorded um, while she was unwell and being upset at, you know, a two-year-old Jeanette for like dancing around and being happy and not recognising how sombre that moment was. Oh, yeah, pretty brutal. Yeah. <laughs> so that happens in the first couple of chapters of this book. Um, and that kind of gives you a perspective of how how her mum sort of expected everyone to treat her and act around her because she was a cancer survivor. Yeah, it's like she was she had to be the centre of Jeanette's life. Mm-hmm. And 
possibly the family's life as well. Yeah. It's just, I think my face was mostly set in that cringe emoji face the whole time <laughs> I was reading this because it was just like, oh, this is horrible. Yeah. 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 It's, of course, not a spoiler that her mum does die um, when yeah. Jeanette is, I think, in her early 20s was when it happened. So, so she was yeah. still still quite young when she was going through this. Um, so we do get probably about a third to a half of the book where her mum is still alive and we get a very clear sense of what their parent-child dynamic is like and how horrifically abusive it was. Mm. Um, Jeanette didn't, of course, realise it at the time as many children of abusive parents do not realise because that's their whole world. They don't know anything different. This is what's normal to them. And her mother would justify a lot of her behaviour, her emotional abuse as saying like this is because I love you, because I care and because I'm such a great parent. Mm. Um, So that was what Jeanette kind of internalised growing up and obviously now she's written a book about it and um, not a spoiler to say Jeanette is now very self-aware about Mm. what her behaviour was like and how it impacted on her. But at the time, yeah, didn't really realise it at all. Yeah, though you do get hints along the way that Mm. she was uncomfortable with some of the things that her mom was doing, that mm-hmm. she would have this disconnect between how she was feeling and what she was actually saying. There was a scene in the book quite early on in her acting career where a producer or a manager or someone like that said to Jeanette's mom, well, Jeanette has to really want this. And the mom was like, of course, you know, of course she wants this. This is all she wants to do. It's her dream. Jeanette loves acting. Yeah. And we get an insight that Jeanette's like, no, not really. I don't want to be here. So in many ways, Jeanette's mother, uh, Deborah was her name, or Deb, was a kind of stereotypical stage parent, um, I suppose, like leaning into that archetype of the parent who pushes their own dreams and their own wishes on their child for for stardom, for, you know, that Hollywood experience. Um, And not every child of a stage parent of course will will have success nor does every child who goes into child acting have that parent that relationship but yeah I guess that um that was sort of in this bigger picture sense of her mother having a lot of control over the family just just like a really unhealthy dynamic that was going on between Jeanette and her mother but also her mother and other family members it seems to me that mum what's the word there's a lot going on for mum, right? Like, it's not just her cancer, I would think, that has led to all this kind of manipulative, controlling behavior. Mm-hmm. I watch Red Table Talk, where Jeanette McCurdy made an appearance, and there was this comment about how mum's relationship with her own mother, so Jeanette's maternal grandma, was quite intense. And in the book, Jeanette's mom made comments about how her parents never let her be an actor herself. And that's why she's pushed this dream on to Jeanette. So I guess it made me wonder if she didn't have like a warm maternal figure herself growing up. Quite possibly. And we do get glimpses of her, of Jeanette's grandparents through the book as well. Mm-hmm. And they, they definitely seem to have a similar flavor of the similar communication style, a similar sort of woe is me, nobody loves me um, mm. kind of approach. So it's, it's a very interesting 
parent-child dynamic between Jeanette and her mom, definitely, but also just an overall family dynamic. Mm. And a relationship with her dad as well, yeah. who seems to be quite a passive figure. Um, her mother is definitely the dominating one, but Jeanette talks about, for example, her father spelling her name wrong on her birthday card, which uh, is a clear example of yeah. just how disconnected he is. <laughs> Yeah, I have thoughts about why he's so disconnected from the children mm. beyond yeah. maybe just the mom being overbearing yeah, and yeah. controlling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I suppose though the focus is really on Jeanette's relationship with her mum. It is right there in the title, of course, but I'd see one, uh, one question that you've put in our episode plan is is it more shocking to society that she talks about a toxic relationship with her mum than with her dad so yeah well I feel like she called this I'm glad my mom died for a reason right it's not just because it's an honest thing and the thesis of her whole recovery but it does have that shock value Mm. I think no one would say out loud that they're glad their mom died but I do wonder if people would be a bit more, oh, yeah, that makes sense if it was, if the title was, I'm glad my dad died. I wonder if there's still this romanticization of mother figures more. I guess to me, there's the sense that moms are still a bit more put up on a pedestal, I suppose, mm. that we don't talk about moms who are not good for their children or are abusive in any ways. I definitely feel like we see a lot more portrayals and discussion around abusive father figures um, Mm -hmm. than we do abusive mothers. And, of course, there are different trends in the types of abuse and those dynamics that can occur as well. It's not, um, you know, a one-for-one equivalent. But, yeah, you're right. I suppose, um, you know, I listened to an interview I watched an interview with Jeanette McCurdy on the Drew Barrymore show that's on YouTube that we can link as well if anyone's interested. And she talks about how that title was very, very much a conscious choice um, as she wanted something that was going to be eye-catching and that would definitely you know, get people's attention because yeah. it goes against that understanding of what a mother is and those sort of archetypes again of what it means to be a mother and the mother-daughter relationship and so on yeah and I suppose we can talk more in details about how she herself comes to how's the term with that complex grief because mm. we know that she you know she loved her mother very much but then over the course of her life comes to realize that not having her mother around is probably best for her and you know the reality is that you know you can love your family but they might not always be the healthiest people for you to have in your life so in this case um it seems like Jeanette's life is better without her mother in it which sounds like a horrible thing to say but it definitely seems like the truth absolutely at one point in the book Jeanette's it was it was stated that Jeanette's therapist uh, kind of suggested to her that her mom might have a combination of personality disorders, but of course, no one actually assessed her for this, so it's unconfirmed. I wonder if it's helpful for you know us or anyone really to speculate on what was going on with with Deborah. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I can sort of. 
I can understand why the therapist might say that and why Jeanette might choose to have included that in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. Because people always want an explanation about why why somebody is abusive, why this has happened. And from one point of view, it can be helpful to sort of explore with empathy about what leads a person to act in a certain way. But on the other hand, we know that personality disorders are very stigmatized and that not everybody with a personality disorder is abusive by any means. And that often, even if that is the case, if somebody has a personality disorder that is contributing to the abuse, it's not a sort of direct relationship that's much more complicated than that. So I just, I am always wary about um, when people are doing this kind of speculation, this uh, uh, potential armchair diagnosis. Um, I don't think it's necessarily helpful. So that that's sort of one element that I didn't think was necessary within the book. Yeah, agreed. I think... Mm. Jeanette actually managed to put in some details in there that makes me not sympathetic, but understanding, I guess, of Deborah a bit. I don't think what she did was forgivable or excusable, but there were details in there that makes it makes her come across as a more complex character than just an abusive mum. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she may be the quote unquote villain of this book, but it's also nonfiction. So yeah. in real life, like we don't have villains. We don't have people who are all good or all bad, even though obviously much of what Deborah put Jeanette and the rest of her family through is abusive and has terrible consequences. In Deborah's mind, she probably was doing the right thing. She was doing what she thought was the best course of action. She was acting with tough love. She was controlling things because that's probably, you know, quite possibly the only way that she thought she should be doing doing this sort yeah. of stuff. So, yeah, I, I do appreciate that we had those moments of empathy, but um, at the end of the day it's more about the behaviour and the impact mm-hmm. the behaviour had and it's very clear within the narrative that that's not okay. I'm much more inclined to mark behavior as being wrong than people as being good or bad. Yeah. The other thing as well is that, you know, trauma or bad things that have happened to you are reasons, but they're not excuses for wrong behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Jeanette herself isn't always acting in the most morally upright way throughout the book as well. So we obviously have this book from her point of view and seeing the trauma that she's experienced. But I do appreciate the the sense of self-reflection that she brought to this book. And I didn't get the sense that can happen with some books where it's like, well, I went through a tough time. So what I did was justified. I think it's more like, this is what led me to that point, but I I can see now that that wasn't okay. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I I appreciate that kind of self-insight. And we do see, she doesn't draw direct correlations or causations between her trauma and the patterns in her young adult life but we can we can see it as readers like yeah doesn't have to be explicitly laid out to sort of understand that that relationship absolutely we can see how the unhealthy relationship between her and her mom and maybe even watching her mom's unhealthy relationship with her dad impact on her her own romantic relationships or even friendships as she went through her life. So Mm -hmm. we get a lot of anecdotes about her difficulties in romantic relationships. Dare I say some of the guys that she chose to date? 
a bit questionable. Yeah, red flags galore. Yeah, I know. <laughs> One of them was 30 while she, she was 18, and I'm like, why? <laughs> why? No, thank you. She, she has quite a significant, I suppose, fear of rejection, mm-hmm. um, difficulty communicating her wants and needs in relationships, mm-hmm. uh, jealousy, even in friendships. So talking about her friendship with Miranda Cosgrove, um, her relationship with Ariana Grande as part of Sam and Cash and yeah. how, how difficult those were for her at times. So yeah, you know, you can sort of see some of those old patterns that are playing out across multiple relationships there. Yeah. And we also see her difficulties with managing her own emotions and her use of what we would call maladaptive coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So binge eating, alcohol abuse, purging. And we also see, um, of course, uh, the lack of sex education that she had growing mm-hmm. up. You know, She grew up in a Mormon family, I believe, even though yeah. they weren't uh, sort of strictly practicing Mormons, uh, I still got the sense that she was very sheltered in terms of uh, sex and the realities of adult relationships too. As we know, that can lead to some significant problems down the track. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And there's a very clear lack of identity for her. So Mm. her whole life was about pleasing her mom and she can't even tell what her favorite ice cream flavor is. There was that scene where she decided that she no longer liked something, a flavor that she liked two weeks ago. Yeah, nutty coconut. Yeah. Yep. And her mom cried over it, like seriously, yeah. be- became seriously emotional about it. Yeah. And yeah. Jeanette um, chose to have the nutty coconut ice cream just to please her mom. Oh. There, there was a quote that I really liked that I, I took a note of about her identity where she said, what is my identity even? What the fuck is that? How would I know? I've pretended to be other people my whole life, my whole childhood and adolescence and young adulthood. The years that you're supposed to spend finding yourself, I was spending pretending to be other people. The years that you're supposed to spend building character, I was spent building characters. So I guess as well that intersects with the whole child acting side of things as well, Um, you know, when that becomes a focus of your life so difficult to know who you are as a person. Yeah, especially when people also identify her as her characters. She talks about how fans would call out, you know, Sam, Sam, and instead of interacting with her as if she's a real person, they just treat her as if she's this two-dimensional character that they see on TV. Mm, I think that happens a lot with with actors who are so well-known for a particular character. Yeah, I heard this. This is a tangent, but I read somewhere that Will Smith uh, talked about how he decided to name his character in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Will as well, so that at least people would know his real name. (laughs) That is kind of clever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, like, child acting on its own probably doesn't create this lack of identity because we see a lot of people who can grow up in in a well-adjusted manner from being a child actor but when you take child acting plus the people pleasing that Jeanette has to do in her everyday life you can see how that creates this vacuum inside Mm. and the lack of control that she has over her own wants and needs and desires yeah I guess you know I don't I don't think child acting is inherently abusive but 
I think of the types of families that are attracted to this lifestyle, the risk of people pushing this upon their kids when they don't really want it. So even though, you know, some kids might be really, really good at acting yeah. <laughs> um, or as good as you can be for, for kids, but that doesn't mean that they enjoy it or that they want to do it long-term or that they would have made that decision in a vacuum as well. And I just worry about how much consent the kids really have in these scenarios. And it's such an easy environment for abuse to occur, particularly it seems like in that Nickelodeon environment, um, for those who don't know, the the creator who's referred to in the story is Dan Schneider, who has recently had a lot of allegations come out against him about these really gross environments that he was creating on Nickelodeon sets. It's just so easy to take advantage of these young, young actors, mm-hmm. um, even if there are protections, policies and procedures in place and so on. It's just not the sort of environment that's easy to intervene in sometimes. Now, and I guess the creator or people like him have a lot of power in those situations as well. And people are less inclined to say no, even the adults in the room. Anyway, shall we talk about just our overall thoughts on the book? Well, I found this to be a really compelling book. Though there were some really difficult parts that... I kind of wanted to skip like there were some really I would say gruesome details about her eating disorders and Mm. some really uncomfortable sex scenes as well yes um yeah (laughs) but I didn't skip them because I think it was I think when people put their trauma on a page it's important to hear them out instead of just brushing those, those sort of things under the carpet yeah, um, as long as you're in the right mindset to listen to it, then it's yes. you know it's a good good thing to sort of understand. Yes, absolutely. I would say listening to the audiobook makes it even more compelling. The way Jeanette voices the dialogues, particularly her mom's, add some reality, I guess, even more into the story. There are just some moments when her mom became really upset or really emotional that I could feel like. I really wanted to cringe away from this person. So I guess in that way, I felt really in Jeanette's skin. And I really admire how honest she was in telling her story. And I couldn't help wishing her all the best for what comes next for her. Because she's only young as well. She's late 20s. I'm pretty sure, yeah. She's about our age or younger, which makes me feel for her even more. So I would say I give this book about 4.5 out of 5 stars. Yeah, great. Well, I echo a lot of what you said. Um, it was a fascinating read and one of the most honest and raw biographies I've ever read. And look, I'm not really a biography person. Like I tend to shy away from nonfiction and I probably wouldn't have picked this up if it wasn't for the hype. And in this case, I think the hype was justified. Absolutely. It just it touches on a lot of topics that are really close to my heart as a psychologist with a special interest in body image, eating disorders and emotion regulation. I guess it just kind of was a like almost like a case study of mm. how all these things can intersect with one another and the role of trauma and abuse. From a perspective of a psychologist, I was just like enthralled from page one. But yeah, overall, I'm actually going to give this a five out of five pretty rare for me but yeah even though I agree with you about uh it being quite uncomfortable at times and 
I guess there's potentially um, maybe just a little bit too much detail about some of the eating disorder content that I do fear runs the risk of being a little bit sensationalized or triggering for some listeners. Um, I think as as long as you're in the right mind space to hear it and can kind of distance yourself from some of that, I, yeah, just as an emotional reaction to this book, I think I gave it a five out of five. Yeah, that's fair. And I think it's hard to say because it's lived experience. We're not here to say whether this is accurate or not, because obviously it's accurate to her life and her writing comes across as really blunt. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned this to me as well, Elise, that it sounds like, you know, she's just telling you the story, letting you make up your own mind rather than her imposing her opinions on you. I thought it was just written quite well. And then I guess just in terms of the sort of uh, eating disorder content, I thought it was a good examination of how they can they can be developed and what can maintain them and the longer-term impacts, uh, as well as, yeah, some of the other themes that are touched on um, OCD with religious undertones, uh, maternal abuse and even carer relationships, so the impact on Jeanette when she was uh, supporting a partner who was experiencing mental ill health himself. So, yeah, it's just I thought it was just a really fascinating book. Yeah, great. I think that's probably about all we can say without going into spoilers. So it might be <laughs> it might be time for our spoiler warning and we'll dive a little bit more into some spoiler content after the tone, after the transition music. I don't know. <laughs> we'll dive we'll dive into the spoiler content in a moment. So tune out here if you don't want to be spoiled. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Amanda. And I'm Claire. We're the hosts of Fictional Hangover Podcast. Fictional Hangover is a podcast about young adult and new adult books, series, authors, and voice actors that is full of spoilers. New episodes are released every Wednesday. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts or on fictionalhangover.com. Remember, the only cure for a fictional hangover is another book. Now, back to the episode. So welcome to the spoiler half of the episode. Um, The first thing we're going to talk about is a little bit more about eating disorders and Jeanette's experience of them. So although we're not going to provide a full-on, I guess, explanation of what eating disorders are, we do just want to take a moment to talk about them a little bit. So I guess the key thing to note here is that there are many different types of eating disorder diagnoses. I tend to look at eating disorders from what's called a transdiagnostic lens. So that means I tend to not focus on the individual diagnosis itself because 
in my view, the diagnoses really are arbitrary um, yeah, and yeah. people like Jeanette tend to move from one type of symptoms to another over time and can often go back and back and forth yeah. between one diagnosis or one set of predominant symptoms or often yeah, have like a mix of symptoms that's classified as something called OSFED or other specified for eating and eating disorder when you don't kind of clearly fit the criteria for one. That being said, probably the most well-known eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And I think there are probably times throughout the story where Jeanette sort of would meet criteria for all of these at one point. I suppose if we think about sort of general characteristics Mm. of her eating disorders in particular, she clearly restricts her food intake throughout her life was taught how to restrict her calories from a very young age and how mm. to... Like clearly and explicitly taught mm. to restrict her calories oh my as well. God. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So her mother basically said, here's how to do it. It's not just yeah. something she picked up on from pop culture. It was an eating disorder that was taught to her, which makes me so sad. Yeah. Jeanette came to her mom and said, I don't want to have breasts because I want to remain a child, which was driven by her mom saying to her, you know, I want you to stay a child and being very emotional mm. about Jeanette growing up and changing. Yeah. So then her mom was teaching her calorie restrictions to keep her from growing essentially into a yeah. woman. And her mom, of course, had her own desire to be to be small, to be slim. Um, we'll talk very openly, explicitly about her weight and achieving a goal weight as well. And that was something that she pushed upon Jeanette is this idea of having a goal weight and for that goal weight to be pretty damn unhealthy as well. Um, yeah. We're not going to talk about specific numbers here. They do in the book, but mm-hmm. yeah, let's just say it was pretty clear that um, Jeanette would have been classified as underweight um, at various mm-hmm. points in time uh, to the point where her doctor uh sort of was raising flags with her mother and her mother was just, you know, ignoring it essentially because that's what she wanted. She wanted her daughter yeah. to be to be slim and to be childlike and, yeah, to not sort of go through puberty, which mm. is very disturbing. Yeah, and her mum was lying to her doctor essentially saying, oh, yeah, I'll watch what she's eating. And she does, mm-hmm. just not in the way that the doctor would have wanted. No. Can yeah. we talk as well about that scene at the very start of the book where Jeanette is in – uh, the hospital with her family, her mum's in a coma, and they're all saying things to her mum to try to like, prompt her to wake up. And the thing that Jeanette chooses to say to her is that I finally reached my goal weight, mum. Like that is that is sort of the story that she deems to be prolific enough that it might wake her mum up from the coma. It was like, I'm thin now so you can wake up and be proud of me. It's just so yeah. heartbreaking. So apart from the food restriction, excessive attention on weight, Jeanette also engages in binge eating mm-hmm. later down the track. Yeah. So binge eating involves eating what's what you know an average person would consider to be like an unusually large amount of food at one time mm-hmm. um, within a sort of short amount of time. And you know, there are lots of reasons why somebody might binge eat. It's not something I really classify as a choice, like an, no. a kind of clear choice that somebody makes most of the time. For Jeanette, it really seemed to be linked with a sort of desire for, um, you know, to manage these strong emotions that she was having. But it all it can also be just um, 
an effect of spending so long restricting food intake, trying to be so strict and controlling for all the time. It can be like the brain just flicks a switch and you can't be that in control for so long. And we know that Jeanette really needed that sense of control when she was growing up. But a lot of people do transition from uh, anorexia symptoms to bulimia or binge eating symptoms over time because they've spent so much time trying to be strictly looking after or controlling their food intake. You can only have control for so long before things can go the other way. Yeah, and it feels a bit like a it has a dissociative flavor to it that you just Mm. you've lost control of yourself and you're just watching it happening in a sense but then I I feel like the other thing that characterizes binge eating is the sense of shame that comes with it as well it's almost not so much about the amount of food that's been consumed it's just that it's large for that person used to soothe themselves but also creates a lot of shame afterwards. Yeah. Um, There's this idea of what's called subjective binges as well, where a person might not, you know, an onlooker might not look at that amount of food or the type of food and think that was excessive or unusual, but the person with the eating disorder might look at that and think that they've been binging um, and that can cause the whole spiral of shame and desire to compensate for that as well. Some people do go on to engage in behaviours to compensate for the binge eating, so things like purging excessive exercises or fasting or even using diuretics to mm. in order to get rid of that calorie that they've seen as yeah. excessive. And then it's so easy to get stuck in an eating disorder cycle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people go through a kind of a classic cycle, which is looking like um, attempts to restrict, followed by binging, followed by purging, followed by attempts to restrict. It's such a hard thing to break that cycle. And in Jeanette's case, it lasted for a long time and had, um, you know, serious impacts on physical health. Yeah, there are lots of ways that eating disorders can affect you physically that aren't just being underweight, um, which is obviously a significant, you know, really dangerous thing to happen. But there are plenty of ways that it can affect you physically as well as mentally. It can be life-threatening. People do die from anorexia. Mm -hmm. So it's not something we take lightly. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. And there was a quote that there was a quote that I highlighted from um, the book where Jeanette said, "I have over a decade's worth of eating disorder experience at this point. There were the anorexic years, the binge eating ones, and the current bulimic ones. The more experience I've got, the more I recognise that the body is hardly a reliable reflection of what's going on inside it. My body has fluctuated frequently and drastically throughout this decade, and no matter how it's fluctuated, I've had an issue underneath it." People don't seem to get that unless they have a history with eating disorders, people seem to assign thin with good, heavy with bad, and also too thin also with bad. There's such a small window of good. It's a window that I currently fall into, even though my habits are so far from good. I'm abusing my body every day. I'm miserable. I'm depleted. And yet the compliments keep pouring in. Which to me just illustrates how society reinforces um, eating mm. disorder behaviors. It's just it's so hard for people to get out of that when there's pressure from all walks of life to be continuing to look a certain way. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I think most clinicians are moving towards health at every size as an approach, yeah. rather than working off the BMI or saying there's a particular quote-unquote healthy weight to work on because 
it's not about the body or the weight that dictates your health. It's about your relationship with food and what's actually healthy for you. Yeah, we should talk about Jeanette's recovery process as we do get that arc throughout the biography. So it took a long time for Jeanette to get help, um, to get support, as of course for a long time she didn't realise that there was anything she was doing wrong or that she needed help. Seems like it. So I think it's important to note as well that the only reason Jeanette went to this first therapist was because her boyfriend at the time said, I can't be with you while you have this problem Mm -hmm. or something like that. So she wasn't, you know, motivated internally to go. So her first therapist seems to be more of a life coach and certainly practice in ways that we wouldn't as psychologists. So they have, they had five sessions a week. The coach whose name completely escaped me, um, goes shopping with Jeanette and goes as her plus ones to award events as well. And almost like, it was like she was providing a healthy or seemingly healthy maternal figure for Jeanette. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. we get, yeah. We get a scene where Jeanette was attending an award show and feeling extremely panicky and started to binge while the therapist wasn't paying attention. And then the therapist came to her and started talking in this really, I guess, caring manner, actually, and quite compassionate as well, and, you know, drawing Jeanette away uh, from that moment. You know, Jeanette described crying in the limo with this life coach who then dropped Jeanette at home. All things that, you know, we probably wouldn't be able to do within the code no. of ethics. Yeah. <laughs> like I wouldn't even hug my clients like for clear like for ethical reasons. Yeah. We have very clear sort of guidelines around boundaries and yeah. what's in and out of the scope of our work, which not every profession mm-hmm. does. But mm-hmm. yeah, this more like life coach style is not something that we have been trained to do. So I'm not sort of saying it's necessarily hundred percent bad, but I, as someone who's familiar with our code of ethics, yeah. I have concerns. <laughs> yeah. It's just our code of ethics is very clear about not being in a dual relationships with our clients. So you can't be going out for coffees with them and being their friends while also still being their mental health professional. And I guess what's happening here probably blurs that line a lot. Yes, definitely. We do see that, you know, this therapist clearly has some idea about what led to Jeanette's eating disorder and even brought it up. But as Jeanette just wasn't ready to hear it. And she quit immediately after that session because I think Lucy, Lisa, whatever her name was, hinted that maybe Jeanette's relationship with her mom wasn't great. And then, yeah, yeah, Jeanette just was like, nope. As someone who's delivered quite a bit of eating disorder therapy myself, sometimes clients do come in and they want to work on the behaviours. Like they want to stop whatever it is that their eating disorder behaviours are, but they might not be ready to actually dive into what's causing them or maintaining them. But often some people come in and in theory they want to change or someone's encouraged them to change, but they're not actually ready to. They still think 
that what they're doing has merit, um, that they are uh, sort of <laughs> not necessarily engaging in something healthy, but, you know, they still have such a strong desire for something like weight loss. Like it's really difficult to shift at times. And a lot of this work is about looking at more than just the behaviors, um, looking yeah. about the motivations and the drives and where they come from too. That being said, though, it is important to work on the behaviors. Like yeah. <laughs> the, the eating disorder therapy that I've predominantly been trained in which I think is what the second eating disorder therapist that Jeanette sees was what, what he was doing. So, you know, after a period of time has passed, Jeanette works with another eating disorder therapist who is not this sort of life coach model. Um, it seemed a lot more like cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders or CBTE, which is what I've been trained in. Briefly, that is an approach that is uh, transdiagnostic. It looks at behaviors first and trying to get um, into a healthier, more regular eating pattern. Um, when I say healthier, I mean like mentally healthier. Not it's not about sort of the physical health benefits of whatever you're eating, and to reduce purging, restriction, and all those unhelpful disordered eating um, types of behaviors before getting to some of the deeper stuff and it's mm. yeah it's quite a structured approach and even if he wasn't doing that explicitly there were definitely elements of what he was saying that made me think that this might have been his his approach which seemed to work better I've got to say yeah. like it had, <laughs> uh, had a, I think a longer term impact on Jeanette it helped her start to understand the impact of her mother's abuse and even come to terms with the fact that their relationship was abusive, which was a very powerful moment. I think it was with the second therapist. I I can't I remember the specifics. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, even if it wasn't directly in session, when she came to her second therapist, she seemed to be more in a space where she was ready for those sort of conversations. So she yeah. was taking on board the suggestions and going through with changing some of her behaviors and reflecting more on her past um, and therefore the changes are more sustained whether that's changes in the behavior or changes in her perspective about herself and her life this has kind of come after a number of adult years after her mother's death um we haven't talked about this super chronologically mm -hmm. so apologies if anyone's <laughs> getting a bit confused but um you know in the years after her mum passed away Jeanette was drinking a lot you know her eating disorder was fluctuating it was often really bad she was no longer working on iCarly and Sam and Cat, but was sort of trying to get other gigs and working on other things had had a string of relationships that had their own problems attached to them yeah things weren't weren't going so well for her emotionally or in terms of her career so interestingly, in the interview I watched with her on the Drew Barrymore show, she talked about how it was important for her to work on the eating disorder before digging into the trauma, as that was something that was so predominant in her life and taking up so much of her her headspace that it was important to do things in that order. I guess essentially the eating disorder is the emotion regulation strategy. Yeah. So you yep. know, you want to make sure the person has healthy emotion regulation. Uh, strategies in place before you can dig up something that would distress them essentially because if you dig up the trauma first then the eating disorder behaviors might just increase because they're trying to soothe themselves in the only way they know how i'm not sure if i'm remembering this correctly but she said she doesn't understand her own emotions a lot of the time 
And that as soon as she felt anything that was scary, she ran to food as a coping mechanism. So it, yeah. it's probably important for her to learn to identify her emotions in the first place. And I suppose for me, I think a lot of her recovery and her her self-reflection that happened in her early 20s, I'd say, was around coming to terms with the role that her mother actually had in her life um, and starting to look back at that and see her mother not as this perfect person, um, as somebody who cared a lot and maybe was a bit harsh sometimes or a bit controlling, but actually as someone who had really significantly had a detriment on her life. And this idea of complex grief that's coming up here, that was really important for Jeanette to start to reframe her early experiences and to come to terms with how all of this interacts Mm -hmm. and yeah, to actually understand that no, her mother was not the good person that she thought she was. We get this theme about how her only birthday wish while her mother was alive was for her mother to stay alive. So once her mother passed away, it was she was very much cast adrift as well mm-hmm. about you know what she wanted in life, not just because of that, but going back to what we talked about before, about how she has really no control over her own desires or choices in life it was all about her mom so not only is she grieving her mother as someone that she loved but this structure almost in her life was completely gone I feel like she learned sort of make room for um, the grief itself but also learning to feel that it's okay if she doesn't want to see or visit her mom's grave ever again. Yeah. And so it is, I guess, nice to see where she is by the end of the novel, at the end yeah. of the biography. I get the sense that she's in a much healthier place by far. Yeah. Uh, she definitely sees the humour in things. Um, like it's not, this book is not all doom and gloom. Like we've talked about yeah. a lot of doom yeah. and gloom, <laughs> but there are a lot of funny moments or moments where you just have to laugh because if you don't yeah. laugh, you'll cry. Yeah. <laughs> some of that is shock value. Some of it is just going, oh, my God, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is what some people have to go through. Holy crap. She, she definitely comes across as someone who has done a lot of growth, I think. Yeah. But it seems like she's making choices to follow what she actually wants instead of what she thought would make her mother happy so I think she's writing more these days she's directing she's chosen not to do the iCarly reboot yeah Yeah. which is interesting yeah which is because even though she has a good relationship with Miranda Cosgrove like then I got the impression that they're not as close as they used to be but their friendship was portrayed quite positively in the book yeah which I'm glad for. Like, yeah. There's <laughs> not a lot of healthy relationships in this book, so that was no. a nice one. Yeah, absolutely. So her choice to leave acting is seems to be a healthy one for her. And, of course, at the moment she's on very much like the press tour of this book. It's interview yeah. after interview. Um, she's doing things like her podcast and so on. Uh, I don't think there's going to be any more acting in her future. <laughs> I get the impression that that is done for. Mm-hmm. Her relationships, like it sounds like she's cut off contact or not necessarily cut off, but like left, let drift a lot of her relationships with her family. Um, I believe the book's dedicated to her brothers, but yeah. So 
in Red Table Talk, she talks about how close she is to her brothers, and that she, you know, she loves them very much, and they have a really good relationship. So they must still be in touch these days. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like she's not in contact with her father anymore. Yeah. In the in the interview I listened to, she said that that kind of drifted away. Um, even though one thing we learn as the book progresses is that her father was not her biological father. There was just sort of enough there that they it, it didn't feel right to sort of continue having yeah. like to be putting so much effort into trying to have this relationship that really didn't have a strong foundation. Yeah. Um, and then even though she met her biological father, they sort of met up a few times. Again, it was, it was just not sort of the right relationship for her to be putting effort into. No, but also, oh, my gosh, when that revelation came, you know, I'm not your father. I was like, why? <laughs> Does she not have had enough to deal with? <laughs> like, <laughs> her trauma bucket is full. Yeah. She's done. <laughs> but also, like, how awful is it? Because throughout Jeanette's childhood, her mom was always accusing her dad of cheating on her and being, you know, useless and not being present enough, which, you know, yes, he was absent, but that's on the back of his wife having a seven-year relationship or something like that. Anyway, shall we talk about our favourite moments from the book? Yes. But I think the moment that struck me as the most emotional um, is the point where Jeanette comes to term with her mother's abuse, um, which is very, very powerful. And uh, she essentially says, you know, if my entire life and point of view and identity have been built on false foundation, confronting that false foundation would mean destroying and rebuilding a new foundation from the ground up. I have no idea how to go about doing this, which I think is a real yeah, demonstration mm-hmm. of how, um, how difficult it can be to come to terms with you know, yeah. you being a, a victim or a survivor, um, which is probably a better term of abuse. But why this struck me so much as well is because listening to the audiobook, Jeanette reads with such a sense of urgency and intensity throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and she reads in a way that's very matter of fact. She hits the sort of comedic points quite well, but it's very sort of mm-hmm. like fast and urgent. But this is the point where her voice broke, um, mm-hmm. that she actually had that moment of just like, this is the point that she could not have that narrator voice. Like it, it was obviously mm-hmm. such an emotional point for her, despite talking about tons of traumatic yeah. and difficult things throughout the book. This is like the moment for her that I think was possibly the most emotionally resonant in the read. And she's such a good writer, isn't she? It's like, yeah, she is. You know, some people might think that the whole reason this book sells so well is the quote-unquote sensational story of it but she's actually a very good writer and I wouldn't be surprised if she pursues a writing career on the back of this I hope she does yeah she should (laughs) she's definitely got the talent for it what were your favorite moments I really like all the moments of friendship between Jeanette and Randa actually I Mm. feel like it's a healthy relationship and she does not have a lot of those um even though they drifted apart in the end it's still nice that she had a friend throughout yeah. some of the really difficult time of her life. And I think like it's okay. You can still celebrate a friendship that's drifted apart as well because maybe that's what you needed at the time and that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's been a bad friendship if it's no longer going on. This sort of ties into my other favourite moment where we have Jeanette's 26th birthday where 
she had a dinner with Miranda and started losing control and she was binging. Mm-hmm. And then she went and had a purge in the bathroom. And she had this ep- epiphany, so to speak, about not wanting to still be caught up in her eating disorder when she turns 45 or something like that. It seemed to be a turning point for her as well in terms of really sticking with the recovery. I'm really curious to hear what our listeners think of some of these themes too. So, yeah, that kind of wraps up our review, but stay tuned because we have a couple of questions for you as well as some resources and recommended reading and the next book that we're covering. So keep tuning in. We're going to post some discussion questions to our Instagram over the next few weeks. If you've read the book, please join in in the discussion. First question, did you listen to the audiobook? If you did, what did you think of Jeanette's narration? What do you think might be the pitfalls of child stardom? Why do some grow up fairly well adjusted and others go on to have a fairly hard time? What are your thoughts on Jeanette's mum, Deborah? Why do you think she acted as she did? And were her actions ever justified? To you, what was the most alarming thing about Deborah's relationship with Jeanette? Out of many alarming things, of course. Out of the ocean of red flags. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the biggest red flag. Yeah. Do you agree with this quote? Especially mums, they are the most romanticized of anyone. Would it have been less shocking to you if the title was I'm glad my dad died? Why or why not? And on this topic more broadly, let's discuss Jeanette's question, why do we romanticize the dead? We really want to know what you think, so head over to our Instagram where we'll be posting those questions over the next couple of weeks. Now, briefly, we're just going to mention that on our show notes, which go up on our website, novelfeelings.com, we will include some resources, including information about eating disorders, how they develop and where to get support, including resources by the Butterfly Foundation, which is Australia's leading mental health foundation for people experiencing eating disorders. We'll also include some resources about some of the other topics touched in this book, even though we didn't get to go into them in as much detail, but information about OCD, grief, and family trauma. And now for an exciting announcement. Drum roll. Our March book is Tiger Daughter by Rebecca Lim. If you haven't heard of this book, let us tell you a bit about it. Wen Cho is the daughter and only child of Chinese immigrants whose move to the lucky country has proven to be not so lucky. Wen and her friend Henry Xiao, whose mom and dad are also struggling immigrants, both dream of escape from their unhappy circumstances. And they form a plan to sit an entrance exam to a selective high school far from home. But when tragedy strikes... It will take all of Wynne's resilience and resourcefulness to get herself and Henry through the storm that follows. Now, why did we pick this book? This is the book that I have been pushing on everyone to read. (laughs) I love this so much. It's middle grade, which I didn't normally read, but seem to have picked up a lot this year. Um, It's just a really... Wow, you know when you love the book so much, you don't know how to explain it because I'm like, here, read this. Um, That probably explains enough. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it has a lot of heart to it and it doesn't shy away from the really hard parts of 
being an immigrant and mm. being a minority in Australia, but it also has a lot of hope. So I think it's a really good book and I'm very excited for you to read it, Elise. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. And that wraps us up for today. For all things Novel Feelings, check out our website, novelfeelings.com. We post an episode summary and links to further reading for each episode. We also post written reviews and information about getting support for you or somebody that you care about. If you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. These reviews really help other people to find the show and help us build our audience. And as we mentioned at the start of the episode, if we get any five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts between now and the next recording date, we will read them on the show. So please do that. (laughs) You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads at novel underscore feelings and remember to check out our new reading challenge on the storygraph also at novel underscore feelings you can also find my bookstagram at paved with books with an extra s at time of recording this is suffering in the background (laughs) still alive yeah still alive yeah but all those reports have taken up all my energy, but I will get back to it again as usual. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we hope that you can stay tuned for Tiger Daughter, which will be coming out in the next couple of months. We'll post an announcement closer to the date. All right. Take care. See you then. Bye.